Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In this day and age, we know how many sacks players have. We know how many Miles Garrett has, and Aaron Donald, and T.J. Watt, and J.J. Watt. But what about before 1982, when the stat became an official NFL statistic? Well, Nick Webster, our guest today, has gone through the painstaking methods, along with others, to bring those sacks back prior to 1982. And he's coming on to tell us how he did it in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And wow, we have a great episode for you today. We're going to go back into some statistics before they were statistics, according to the NFL. We have a gentleman here that's uh, painstakingly uh, amongst with others gone back and found some great stats that we get to enjoy today in the modern era from players that didn't really have that advantage uh, when they played. And if they did, maybe they'd be recognized a little bit more. But we're going to try to get some of that recognition and football preservation with Nick Webster. Uh, Nick, welcome to the Pigpen. Hi, thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah, Nick, why don't we start off, uh, let's uh, give the listeners a little bit of insight on on who you are, what what you do, sort of your your path into your your football passion that, that you have. Sure. Um, well, look, I'm a, I'm a football researcher and a football historian. Um, I've been at this uh, about 30 years now, which, wow. uh, you know, long, longer than I haven't. <laughs> um, and the and- thing, the thing that's really amazing is he's only 28 years old. <laughs> yeah. I, well, as I say, I've, I've been doing this longer than I haven't. Um, and in fact, as a as a teenager and in high school, literally first started down this journey when I connected with uh, a guy named John Turney, who probably some of your listeners know. Um, he and I connected and started uh, started partnering on doing some research around originally just identifying uh, individual sack statistics for defenders prior to when they were made official in 1982 and branching out into tackles and block kicks and forced fumbles and everything that wasn't measured that you have today. Um, and it was really just with the idea in mind that we'd love to know all the same stuff about Deacon Jones, Gino Marchetti, all of those guys and all of those names that you hear about what why don't we know the same stuff we know about them that we know about TJ Watt? Um, so it's uh, really an exercise to try and uncover as much of that as possible and everywhere that that leads, um, which uh, makes at least 30 years worth of work, I suppose. 
Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that's quite an undertaking. I, I mean, I know when John was on and he, I believe he mentioned you by name, even when he was on and gave you the credit you deserve of, you know, yeah. the, those sack records, you know, as we know, 1982 was sort of that line of debarkation where the NFL said, okay, this is a statistic. Now people have sacks and yeah. how you guys came up with some of these numbers. And, uh, boy, I mean, that's an interesting story. I I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, some of the methodology that you use sure. to, to find these sacks. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned 1982. Um, it sort of had to happen. Um, the the word was in common usage from the very, very late 60s. You know, in lore, Deacon Jones came up with it. Deacon, Deacon likes to take a lot of credit for a lot of things, but he certainly popularized it. And then mm -hmm. through the 70s, it was a common term. And then uh, many of you will remember the New York Sack Exchange, that Jets line became a huge thing in 1981. So in 1981, there's a famous picture which became a poster and magazine covers, and it's the four linemen from the New York Sack Exchange on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in their uniforms with their helmets under their arms. Mm -hmm. I remember. And so, you know, it's on the cover of Sports Illustrated on posters, and yet it wasn't an official statistic. Well, lo and behold, the next year, the league makes it an official statistic. Um, and ironically, 82 was a strike year, so... You know, you're talking about a nine game season and people, you know, league leaders with sort of a dozen or so uh, sacks. Um, so, you know, as I started this work and started looking at this in the mid 80s, the career leaders had 50, 60, and the list included none of the names, you know, you'd always heard of as the greats. Jack Youngblood wasn't on the all time career leaders, Deacon Jones wasn't on the all time career leaders. Um, and John actually wrote some very early articles talking about research he had done, uh, particularly with the Rams and Youngblood and Deacon Jones, uh, to identify their historical sacks. So I connected with him and, uh, and we started down this path. Um, you know, John lives, uh, in New Mexico out West. Uh, I at the time was in North Carolina out East and so to some degree, we sort of split the country in two. And so when there was a, a need to go in and try and do research at the Steelers facility, well, it was a drive, but I could make it there and he couldn't. <laughs> uh, if it was the Falcons. I could make it there and he couldn't. If it was the Broncos, he could make it there and I couldn't. <laughs> if it was the Phoenix Cardinals, once they'd moved out there, he could make it and I couldn't. So, 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 so you actually, you went to the facility and put on the reels and start watching well, yeah and th this goes into sort of how we did it um we're largely losing using primary sources so i would say that play-by-plays were the first original and main source of identifying these so uh if you look at a game book today it has starting lineups and stats and so on and then literally a play-by-play -play account uh and then at the end we'll have actually a, a tackle charge. We'll have tackles and assists and sacks and passes defensed and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, older games had those tackle charts. In some cases, you had to read the line-by-line, play-by-play. Um, but it was largely those play-by-play -play accounts that we started with. Um, but the play-by-plays weren't complete. Um, not every team had their play-by-plays. Some of them had them only as far back as the late 60s, some the early 60s, very few had them into the 50s. 
And even the quality of the play-by-plays themselves was different. Uh, so we started with that, filled in with film where possible, uh, filled in with newspaper accounts where possible, coaches' accounts, uh, post-game press releases, um, I, you know, basically anything that's a primary source. I think what we discovered very quickly was when you looked at secondary sources, so the guy that wrote a book about a team eight years later um, didn't always have perfect recall of what happened that season or the game. Right. And players were no, players had notoriously bad memories of what they did. They always missed in the same direction, though. They always had a better game than they thought. Yeah, yeah the fish was always bigger that they, than the, what they actually caught, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so started with play-by-plays. Um, go to film, newspaper, coach's account, press release, anything that was done on the spot when the game was played at the real time. Now, there's nothing that beats film, but the reality is there's only so much film available. And so when you pile up play-by-plays and film and newspapers and coaches' accounts and press releases, you basically get what we've managed to find. And now it's a process of scouring to find play-by-plays that used to be missing that somebody's unearthed somewhere, a film that somebody dug up uh, from a, you know, who knows, a garage or an attic that shows up. Um, Occasionally there are smaller newspapers that come online or that you're able to find. Um, Coaches' accounts are very difficult, but there's some of those out there. I managed to get some Weeby Bank stuff from the cradle of coaches in Miami, Ohio, uh, where they have a, a historical archive of some of the famous coaches that came through there. Um, so all primary sources, but play-by-plays are really the main source for these. Interesting. Now, just just a couple of comments and maybe uh, that I, I have, guys, more in lines of questions or yeah. uh, theories here. But, you know, you, you talk about, you know, we talked about 1982 and the statistics and, you know, with the sacks. And now it seems like a new sat, stat is coming out every year that the NFL is saying, hey, now we keep track of this. And yeah. uh, which is good. I mean, a lot of them are towards, you know, offensive linemen, for instance, of which you don't know much about anything mm-hmm. other than awards that they may have gotten. But um, I, I sit there and I think back to the writings of like Park H. Davis, who's, you know, many consider maybe one of the first football historians, not always accurate in what he said, but again, yeah. the man tried to record some things on college football back in the turn of the last century. And he, his main thing where he started off his main book in 1911 is he said he's doing this because baseball has so many numbers and statistics and people yeah. are drawn to them, you know, just like, uh, you know, football nerds like you and I, uh, we, we love to see the numbers and it tells a story of the history and what, so he started that momentum and then it seemed to drizzle off and only a few stats here and there. And then that resurgence in the eighties, uh, mainly mm-hmm. and on in today, what do you think, uh, why was there sort of that drought and when baseball was just, just grabbing every single thing you can imagine, you know, how many splinters were coming off the bat you could probably find. Yeah. Uh, why, why was there such a difference between the two sports you think? Yeah. I, but boy, that's a, that's a difficult question. I, <laughs> I think there are a couple different threads there. I think one is just the nature of baseball is very binary and measurable. Um, you know, each each pitch is identifiable. You know what the outcome is. Was it a ball? Was it a strike? You know, did the batter make contact? Did he get on base? It, it, it's uh, they're very discrete events. Um, 
football's a little bit more difficult in in that and you have 22 guys running around and if it's a um you know a quarterback sneak at the goal line what do you say about what the left cornerback did on that play it's a little bit difficult you know um i talk about the play-by-plays there are even play-by-plays of varying quality as you get back into the 50s and 60s some of which have a great deal of detail about what happened on that play um but the chicago bears for example had awful play-by-plays in the 60s and they would say things like sayers plus four okay Gail Sayers carried the ball. He got four yards. We know nothing else about it. What direction? Was it to the right? Was it to the left? Who made the tackle? We know nothing else about it. Sayers plus four. Um, And, you know, the Detroit Lions would say, you know, Sayers off right tackle, uh, you know, breaks a tackle by so-and-so brought down by such-and-such. Now you know much more about what actually happened on the play. Um, But... Football just, uh, I don't know that it lends itself to simple sort of discrete explanations in the same way baseball does. And I think that's make, made it made it more difficult. Um, I mean, that's a good point. But how about, how about some of the big things? Like sacks are a pretty big item where it's usually one, two, maybe three people involved in taking the quarterback down. It's pretty identifiable, um, Mark. And I'm just surprised that something like that would be, you know, it's very easy to record it. Um, Mm -hmm. And and journalism probably was a little bit more detailed back before television and the ESPNs and everything, because now it's sort of redundant to to say all that. They can just tell the the broad brush story. But that's, I guess, I'm surprised that they didn't have more of those stats. I, I suppose I'm surprised as well, although, and I think a lot of folks who do research of this sort or who just read from back then, there was never a focus on defense. There just That's... really wasn't a focus on defense. It was always a focus on offense. So, you know, two defensive things were recorded historically going quite far back. It was interceptions and fumble recoveries. And the only reason was because that changed possession. You know, if it didn't change possession, it really wasn't important on defense. They, they were the splash plays. The, the, that's right. right that's strong. right. So, um, you know, if you go back when when guys were playing two ways, you know, generally it was the guy who played better on offense that would play more than the guy who was more, you know, defensively focused. And it was probably Sam Huff and those New York teams in the late 50s and you know, the violent world of Sam Huff that started to focus and kind of make defense sexy. Uh, and they talk about that Giants team and the crowds, you know, first, theoretically being the first to chant defense, defense, and, you know, and Sam Huff being sort of a, a household name. Um, prior to that, defenders were really secondary. Um now that's still the 60s, but it just took a long time for for that part of the game to become something that people were really interested in. There wasn't a Defensive Player of the Year award until the early 70s. You know, Alan Page essentially won the first one there, and he actually won it because he got the most votes in the Player of the Year award. So, and he was a defender. Oh, we'll give him the Defensive Player of the Year. How about that? And then they decided to actually have an award for that side of the ball. Well, that's the 70s before they decided to do that. Um, 
of, of course, there would have been a defensive player of the year in 53 or 63, but it, it took until the 70s for that focus. Now there's attention on everybody, but it was really just such an offensive focus back then, and particularly for the statistics. Okay. Well, I'm glad you segued into it because I wanted to bring up the defensive player of the year. You know, in yeah. some of our, our precursory uh, conversations, we had uh, correspondences. Uh, we talked a little bit about how your stats would uh, really sh shine some light on if there was a defensive player of the year. Say, for instance, in 1951 is the one example that you brought up. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could discuss that a little bit and uh, who, who would have been that defensive player of the year? Yeah. Um so as I mentioned, nothing nothing really official, or at least AP prior to the early 70s. There were some other organizations that would hand out awards here and there, even in the late 60s uh, uh, through the players. Um, but, you know, going back and doing this type of research and you take it with along with tackles and tackles for loss and forced fumbles and the interceptions, which we know. Um, and you can start to discern who, who would have been the players that would pop out and one of the all-time pass rush seasons. And, and frankly, I think probably one of the top five or six pass rush seasons of all time was Len Ford in 1951. Um, in a 12-game season for the Browns, he had 23 sacks. Wow. Which is just incredible. A, a, um, a two-spot a game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and was just absolutely incredible that season. I'm positive that Len Ford... Uh, if we had the attention we had today, he would have been the defensive player of the year that year. Um, he forced a number of fumbles on those sacks. He also had a number of stuffs, tackles for loss. Uh, basically, everything he did was making plays behind the line of scrimmage. And he really he really destroyed games for the offenses. Len Ford in 1951, if you watch film, uh, for those that are you know in my age group, it's like watching Lawrence Taylor in the eighties. He just absolutely destroyed games. Um, mm. You know, I, I'm not sure I, I can think of a defender it, in recent years, maybe Aaron Donald or JJ Watt, where, you know, the entire game plan had to deal with this guy. Uh, that was Len Ford in 1951. Uh, Almost like a Reg, Reggie White-esque. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and now it's interesting you know, Len Ford was a he was a two way end at Michigan, played for a couple of years in the AAFC for the Los Angeles Dons. Then the Browns drafted him in 1950 as part of the AAFC dispersal draft. He played a few games and then was injured in a famous uh, in a famous fight uh, against the Cardinals, broke his jaw, had to sit out the remainder of the season. Um lost, broke his jaw, couldn't eat, lost 25 to 30 pounds, hmm. came back and then only played in the 1950 championship game. So he played a few games at the start of the season, missed the rest, played in the championship game. Then he comes back in 1951 and just destroys the league. As I say, you know, 23 and 12 games. He had to make up for some lost time. <laughs> he, he more than made up for lost time. And he was probably the the first best great, um, you know, defensive end in the, you know, when there were some guys playing two ways, and, you know, uh, Bill Hewitt in the 30s and then guys like that. Um, some will argue about Ed Sprinkle, who went into the Hall of Fame recently, who started as a two way guy in the 40s. 
um, and played defense in the early 50s. But, uh, you know, in 49, 50, 51, 52, um, as you started having people whose focus was on playing defense, he was the first best defensive end. Oh, okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to use that same topic. I'm going to transition to another defensive player of the year. Let's go to modern times. We just got done with the 2023 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, another Cleveland Brown was uh, actually was a defensive player of the year. And yeah. Miles Garrett, I I uh, live on the other side of the state border. I'm I'm halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Erie. And yeah. I'm, I'm a Steelers fan. And we didn't have a lot to root for this year. Other than we beat the Browns twice and mm-hmm. beat the the Ravens, uh, I'm sorry, we beat the Browns once, beat the Ravens twice and the Bengals. So that was some good stuff. But the defensive player of the year this year, we had you know T.J. Watt, we had Miles Garrett, probably definitely the the two top defenders probably in the NFL. I, I would say, especially if you're looking at the the sack statistics, but. What what was your opinion of the defensive player of the year and how how it went down? Yeah, um, I'm a Steeler fan as well, but my opinion is that Miles Garrett was the defensive player of the year. I I just think he had more impact on the game. Um, he occupied more of the offensive time. Uh, he occupied more blockers. You kind of heard about the the four hands strategy. You always needed four hands on him. Um, so while he didn't get to the quarterback as much. Um, and again, somebody who's done, I've done 30 years trying to figure out quarterback sack numbers. TJ had more, but I think Garrett had a bigger impact on the game overall. Uh, Van did what sacks are really important and they're big plays, but pressure is important. Hits are important and just impacting the way the offense plays is important. Uh, I think this year, I think, I think Garrett was just devastating. And I think he was the best defensive player this year. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, Good by points. The, you mentioned two, Micah Parsons might argue a little bit. Max Crosby might argue a little bit. It's um, this was also a very tight year. I, I don't think this was a season where there was a defender who really stood out. Um, you know, if you go back to when J.J. Watt won his three defensive players of the year, the first one in 2012, he won 49 out of 50 votes. Von Miller got one vote. Uh, you know, in 2014, he got 50 out of 50 votes, mm-hmm. unanimous. Uh, this was not one of those years. Um, Aaron Donald, when when he was winning them, um, not necessarily unanimous, but, you know, was getting uh, almost all of the votes. This was a really, really tight year. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, definitely good points. And I'm, I'm glad you bring up that other side of the story, too, because, you know, yeah. Garrett, Garrett, a tremendous player. Mm-hmm. Uh, no taken away from, but you know the argument is you know if you look at sort of the the Big Twelve uh, s- statistics that you would look at for a rush uh, end rusher like yeah. uh, T.J. Watt is dominant. I think in like eleven of twelve, you know, including the sacks mm-hmm. and tackles for loss and fumble recoveries and you know interceptions and think you know just those things. But uh, and he didn't get it. So that's that's sort of the in Western Pennsylvania and you, I'm sure being a Steelers fan, you read about it all the time and heard all yeah. about it and listened to it. And uh, that's sort of the big argument and, and why, and I can't, I can't disagree with that. My, of course I'm, I'm biased, so I can't, mm-hmm. that's a, 
I don't really want to have the opinion on it, but I'm because I'm a little biased on it. But yeah, thank yeah. you for for the candidness on that. That's uh, that's interesting. So, what other? Okay, we we talked a lot about sacks, and we talked yeah. about you know some things. What what other statistics have you dug up from the the you know the archives and buried in the the must and dust to to bring yeah. some light to? That's I've I've tried to compile just about anything that can be. So tackles. Uh, you know, they they mean something. They're not mm -hmm. as meaningful as sacks, but, uh, you know, tackles didn't become official really until very, very recently. Um, uh, tackles for loss, stops, forced fumbles, uh, things of this sort, um, all of which are really, really valuable plays and meaningful plays. And we know what happened last year. We know what happened about a decade ago, but um, Honestly, for any of those, once you get prior to even about the year 2000, uh, the numbers become very squishy. Um, and so uh, I've looked to compile all of those as well. Um, you know, in, with tackles, there was a guy named Jesse Tuggle from the Atlanta Falcons who famously had over 200 tackles in a couple seasons. Well, those were coaches numbers. And the Atlanta Falcons coaches were very generous in how they gave gave away tackles to Jesse Tuggle. So if you look in the play-by-play -play accounts of the games for those seasons, eh, he had 120, 130, 140, but the coaches gave him a couple hundred. And maybe it's that if somebody ran out of bounds and Jesse was in the neighborhood, he got credit for a tackle. Or maybe if somebody brought the runner down and Jesse piled on later, he got credit for a tackle. <laughs> um so it's uh, it's interesting to go back and and look at those types of things in history as well. Um, you know, now, get, now did you do those statistics sort of in conjunction when you're doing the sacks? Because you're you're perusing, I'm assuming, the same information and yeah. You know, very, okay, here's a tackle. Frequent. Here's a tackle for loss. Okay, this one's on the quarterback. Here's a sack. That yeah. that's sort of how it went goes down. It, in general, yes. Um, I should say over the course of and this is over the course of decades. There have been times, uh, for example, where I had one day uh, with the Atlanta Falcons to go into the facility and dig through their numbers. And I was just laser, laser focused on the sacks because that's all I had time for, um, which I always look back and kick myself. Gee, while I was there, I really should have grabbed this. I really should have grabbed that. But when possible, um, you know, I have a grid I fill out and it's for every single play. Who made the tackle? Was there a sack? Was there a tackle for loss? Was there a forced fumble? Was there a pass defense? Was there any of those sort of standard defensive statistics, even quarterback hits, you know, reading through a play-by-play -play or watching a film, uh, what can you see on every single individual play? No, that's uh, that's very interesting. But okay, so you're sort of looking at it, you know, game by game, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, especially in that case. What is, how much time is involved in you to record, let's say, one game's worth of tackles? It it depends on the source. If it's from a play-by-play -play account, it's pretty quick. Generally, you know, one quarter is about one page, and so you'll have about four pages. And it depends on the quality of the play-by-play, -play, but that could take 10 minutes. Uh, if you're watching a film, well... You have to make it through the film. Did they edit out huddles? Did they not? Okay, if they edit out huddles, it's probably 30 minutes. Um, but some old films are very grainy. You're watching a 1952 Cleveland Browns film. The weather isn't that good. It's in black and white. Their uniforms are getting muddy. 
who was that that jumped on that pile? I can't really see. Um, so that can actually take a long time uh, just to identify who's doing what. Now, do you find in some of those old films, you know, back in the days where they had an era, I believe, uh, maybe the 50s and 60s, where you had the the uh, shoulder pad numbers and in some cases helmet numbers, you know, thinking like the mm -hmm. chargers uh, had that underneath the lightning bolt. Were those some of those uh, very helpful in getting some player numbers for you as you were doing your study? Yes, absolutely. That's helpful. Um, what's not always helpful is the uniform numbers weren't as consistent back then. You would have guys who wore multiple uniform numbers in the same season. Um, and you go to pro football reference and they do great work, but they, you know, they only have one uniform number for most of those guys. So, um, you know, Gino Marchetti wore multiple uniform numbers in the same season, Coy Bacon, multiple uniform numbers in the same season. So wait, who's this, is, you know, who's this guy with a uniform number that's not in the program, that's not in the, in pro football reference. Uh, you have to go back and try and figure those out as well. Very interesting. Okay. Now, Nick, let's say that somebody you, you mentioned earlier, you're still doing the study. You and John are still trying to bring that mm -hmm. information. There's new stuff coming up all the time. What if one of the listeners out there ha has a, a piece of film that, uh, you know, grandpa had, uh, he had the old eight millimeter out at the stadium was filming and, you know, he doesn't think that maybe it's this information is in your, your records and maybe it's something you'd be interested in. How, how could they get a hold of, of you or John? Yeah, I think that the Pro Football Journal or the NFL Football Journal um, is our uh, is our website. That's probably the best way, and we publish a reasonable amount there. Mostly John; he does most of the writing. Mm -hmm. I should. Uh, he's much far more prolific than than anybody else is in writing on the topic. Uh, although the research is more spread out, so uh, NFL Football Journal um, would be the website to go to. Um, always interested you know i i still get things from from people hey i've got this newspaper article did you know about this one hey uh hmm. so always interested we've done tons of uh tons of research i'm positive there are things out there though that we haven't seen so i'd love to hear from your listeners uh on anything that they've got that they think is interesting well, fantastic. And, and folks, so, you know, we will share the link with the, for the pro football journal and, uh, you know, that way you have a connection to get to, to Nick and to, to John to help out. Cause we want to, everybody's goal is to have the accurate information in preserving the football history. And, uh, we really appreciate what, what you folks are, are doing there to do that. So, yeah. so where does it go from here? Okay. You're, you're still collecting. Uh, is there any other statistics that uh, you want to start acquiring that maybe you say, oh, doggone it, I went through those game films and maybe I should have done this too. You know, there's always ideas that come up. Do yeah. you have anything like that? Yeah, I think as I think through it and some of your, some of your uh, listeners may be familiar, we now have on pro football reference uh, the individual sacks back to 1960. Um, so uh, that's, probably they're not official statistics and they're italicized on there and, mm -hmm. and caveated, but um, so those are out and available and published. Um, I think, you know, it would, uh, I would certainly have the desire if we could get them sufficiently complete to have that back to 1950. Um, now, just to give you a sense, 
those sacks are 98% complete back through 1960, but start to get very incomplete as you get into the 50s. So for the decade of the 50s, about 40% of all the sacks don't have an assigned individual for them today. So still very right. incomplete. Now, that means we have about 60%. Which is uh, which is quite good as well. As I mentioned, you know, 1951 for Len Ford, uh, that's a that's a solid number. Um, but it's not really fair to publish a number when the 1951 Cleveland Browns are 100 percent complete and the 1955 Pittsburgh Steelers are 11 percent complete. It's uh, it's not fair to uh, Ernie Stoutner and those guys uh, to suggest that they didn't do much just because the numbers are incomplete. So I think first it would be it would be nice to be able to uh, have the 1950s more complete and fill the sack history back through the 50s. Helps you with guys like Gino Marchetti, um, Andy Robustelli, uh, both of whom had the bulk of their sacks in the 50s, and guys who probably should have more attention and should get Hall of Fame consideration. Gene Brito had huge seasons in 53, 55, and 57. Um, so I think 50 sacks and then really anything else, tackles, forced fumbles and the like um, prior to 2000, but certainly as you get to 80s, 70s and uh, the 1960s, um, you know, we probably won't have a complete Dick Butkus forced fumble number, but I'm positive people would be interested in how many fumbles Dick Butkus forced. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of those uh a lot of those that are really interesting. Um, it's it's a little bit, and, and John and I talk about this, and I just alluded to it. If you have the decade of the 50s, 60% complete and 40% missing, is that good enough to publish? You can publish it, but somebody may, you know, somebody could misuse it. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, that we have so-and-so leading the league in sacks in 1955 right now, but that may only be because uh, because the Steelers are so incomplete. Um, so you also don't want to draw the wrong conclusions based on incomplete information. So it's it, it's really difficult. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Okay, so is this uh, mainly, it's professional football, but is this only NFL or do you count like AFC and AFL stats who are leagues in that sort of in that era that you're talking about? Yeah, we, we've definitely collected both AFL and AAFC. Um, AAFC a little bit tougher, older. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and yeah. uh, obviously as some of the teams didn't roll into NFL teams, hard to find Chicago, Chicago Rockets <laughs> statistics uh, for example Miami Seahawks probably uh... <laughs> oh boy yeah yeah uh, AFL teams are easier again because they're continuous um, you know and we have some great stuff Tom Sestak for the Bills they, they, they were televised yeah so yeah a little bit better than the AFC was yeah very very yeah. interesting well, well Nick it is uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you I mean this is very interesting and I mean it's those things that we look at all the time to appreciate the past the statistics and and you and John and others have just done a tremendous job of uh, you know thankless work that we we don't appreciate and I'm glad that we get to spend these opportunities to to thank you for your great work and uh, you know continued success in doing this and appreciate your time here today uh, telling us what you do appreciate it thank you Darren
peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.